Well, good morning. I'm so pleased to be with you again, and I'm just delighted to see the faces that I already recognize, some new faces as well, and the new facilities that you're meeting in. This has been such an encouragement to me just to know all that the Lord's been doing. I follow what's going on here from a distance, and so that's encouraging to me when I can get, get to be here. And I thank you also for the prayers and the blessing and the help that you are to us there in Brazil as we continue to serve in a local church and also promote Reformed Baptist truth and church work in Brazil. Brother Connor asked me to share a little bit about what's going on there in Brazil right now. In our local church, the Lord's been blessing. We've reached over 80 people in our congregation in the city where we are. We have three church plants going on in other cities. Two of them have already uh, are above 30 members, and one of them is over 20 members. And we had uh, ordination for three pastors this year. And so the Lord's really been raising up leadership and providing for these churches as well. And so soon we should see more um, independent local churches working to share the gospel and to reach out to other people and to build up the saints and the faith of, of Christ. We are also, of course, involved in a fellowship of Reformed Baptist churches in Brazil. And that's something that has begun to actually have an impact. This year we had our first conferences. We had one conference in the city of Sao Paulo, which is Brazil's largest city, a little over 20 million people in the metropolitan area. And at that, at that conference, we dealt with things about uh, what it is to be orthodox, to reject liberal theology, and we also talked about the concern that we have for being not just focused on our distinctives, but have a legitimate perspective on what it means to be Catholic in the sense that we realize that we have brothers who disagree with us on other issues, and we respect that as well. We had also another conference that was in the city of Curitiba. It's a city that's the capital of the state of Paraná in Brazil. It's a large city as well. It has something around 3 million people. And in that conference, we dealt with issues about spiritual gifts. We talked about cessationism. A lot of Brazilians that are becoming Reformed come from Pentecostal background. Of course, probably around 80% of Brazilian evangelicals are charismatic. And so in that context, a lot of people understand something of the doctrines of grace. They look for a Reformed church but they don't have any understanding of how they should deal with all these perspectives that they've been taught about, spiritual gifts going on in the church today that are related to miracle working, uh, people who are supposedly having the gift of healing and also speaking in tongues and all this kind of thing. So that was one of our concerns. That was something that it was a concern for the local church that hosted that conference. And so we dealt with that as well, and I think the Lord blessed that very much. And so we've been very encouraged to see this. At this point, we have 58 churches that have bonded together. It's very similar to FIRE. In fact, uh, we went on, webs on FIRE website, took notes of a lot of things, and we've been having the same structure, basically. We maintain the independence of the local church. It's not an organization that will ever be able to interfere our constitution doesn't allow us to ever interfere in local churches. And so the churches are independent, and people cooperate as long as they 
are convinced by what they see that the fellowship is doing, that that's the thing that they also believe in. Of course, anybody who goes astray and doesn't follow orthodox doctrine can be removed. But people have been coming along and cooperating. This year, we've just, uh, I've had contacts every month, probably something like four or five different uh, pastors or church leaders contacting me and wanting to know about our fellowship, and some of them are basically in line with our principles, and we can allow them to, to join us. Other ones, we have to explain to them where we stand, and, and they realize that they're not really standing for the same things as we are. But the Lord's been doing a lot in Brazil, and so uh, Brazil's going through very challenging times. Uh, a lot has happened that disappoints us, especially in the political realm, but the Lord has also been working in the hearts of many people, and a lot of people have come to uh, understand that there are more biblical ways of approaching the scripture and worshiping and all these issues that has actually become a, an encouragement to us. You know, uh, My personal testimony, I went to Bible college at a school called Randall. It's right down the highway here on I-35. It's in Moore, just past the Moore shopping area. And so some of you, I'm sure, know where that is. It's a Free Will Baptist school. I came to Reformed Faith. I, the Lord opened my understanding to believe the doctrines of grace at that point. And I looked all around the Oklahoma City area, and I couldn't find a single Reformed church to go to. I went to a Southern Baptist church where not everybody was Reformed, but a lot of people were. And so it was, you know, you could be a Calvinist and be in that context, and you, you were welcome there. And so that was something that was encouraging to us. But it wasn't a church that actually had that kind of uh, theological emphasis. Even so, it's so blessed to see what the Lord has done at this church. If we had found this church back at that time, and if I, if I had, you know, this church wasn't, wasn't raised up yet by the Lord, but if that had been available, I would have been very delighted to find a church like this. And I know that just as the Lord has done this here in Oklahoma City area, this has been happening in Brazil as well in many cities. And so we're encouraged by that. And we're, uh, we understand that not everybody who is working for the Lord and serving the Lord is going to be in our particular fellowship. That's not what really matters. But people who do have a very strong affinity to the way that we see things, the way that we understand ecclesiology and, and basically theology as well, we really want to be able to encourage churches like that. And it's been a blessing. So I've been encouraged, and I'm sure that the other people who have become part of this fellowship have been encouraged as well. So I appreciate your continued prayers for us because you know, the Lord is the one who does the work. All we, we do is we are used by the Lord as he gives us grace. And so we really depend completely on him. And since this is the month when we focus on the Reformation very often, I'd like for you to turn your, with your, me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, and I'm going to deal with a passage that I think says a lot regarding the important things that we talk about when we talk about the emphasis and the message that the Reformation proclaims loud and clear. Uh, one of the mottos of the Reformation is soli deo gloria, to God alone the glory. And that's what we'll be focusing on as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 to 20. <clears throat> and the word of God says, All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, so that you may live and increase and go in 
and take possession of the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years in order to humble you, putting you to the test, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you go hungry and fed you with the manna which you did not know, nor your fathers, nor did your fathers know, in order to make you understand that man shall not live on bread alone, but man shall live on everything that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. So you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of streams of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, fig trees, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without shortage, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, and you build good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks increase, and your silver and gold increases, and everything that you have increases, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He who led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and its thirsty ground where there was no water. He who brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness, it was he who fed you manna which your fathers did not know, in order to humble you, in order to put you to the test, and to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you are to remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth in order to confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And it shall come about, if you ever forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods, and serve and worship them, I testify against you today, that you will certainly perish. Like the nations that the Lord eliminates from you, so you shall perish, because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. This passage is 
probably one of the most searching passages in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses preaches to the people these last words that he has before he's going to die and they're going to be led by Joshua into the promised land. And of course the instruction here is the instruction to obey. That they need to obey, they need to follow the commandments God has given them, they need to do this out of a heart of gratitude. When people don't obey, the fundamental problem is always, of course, ingratitude underlying every act of disobedience. Anyone who is minimally grateful will seek to please God just out of the fact that they've been so blessed. The person who disrespects God is someone who has received blessings upon blessings upon blessings and has not responded with thanksgiving as should be the case. In fact, the Bible points that out in Romans chapter 1 about the people around the world who, whether they've heard about Jesus or they've had access to Scripture or not, they know that there's a Creator, and even so, they have not been grateful. They haven't given thanks to God. And that's a fundamental problem in the human heart. You see, as the Bible talks about in these verses, notice verse 1. All the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do so that you may live and increase and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord swore to give your forefathers. There's the command. The purpose is to remind them to be obedient. Verse 6, it says, Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Again, that's the message. You need to obey God. You need to obey his laws. Verse 11, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. So the important thing that Moses is trying to drive into their minds is that they must obey. They must show this kind of submission to God and his expressed will as it's come across in his written word. But all this, of course, comes out of gratitude, out of the fact that God has given them so many benefits. And in fact, God has led them in a path where he says, God has humbled you. Because you know, we as human beings tend to be very proud. We want to be arrogant, we want to be show-offs, and that's something that, for our own good, the Lord has to kind of break that spirit and kind of bring us to our senses and make us realize that, that you know we're not so fantastic as we would like to you know, propagate about ourselves. And so the Lord has done this with these people, and one of the ways he's done it in his wisdom is he's allowed them to remain in slavery for a long time, where they've cried out to God and they've prayed, oh God, deliver us, deliver us. And they've realized that they have no power in themselves to deliver themselves. There they are completely subjugated by a more powerful people than they were. And they had no way of saying, let's start a revolution, let's end this slavery. But then God comes in, and he brings them out with a mighty hand. And he breaks the power of Pharaoh and humiliates all the gods of Egypt and all the mighty power of Egypt, which is probably the greatest superpower on earth in terms of just military might at this point. But nothing of that can stand against God. And just a simple man walking in with a staff just breaks all of that because the power of God's upon him. And God just shows them that the fact that they can now walk out of Egypt, it's not on their merit. It's not that they are so capable of delivering themselves. And then he 
kept them alive in the desert. And he provided for them. Notice verse 2, how the text highlights the blessings that God has given his people. Verse 2 says, And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years in order to humble you. Skipping on to verse 3. And he humbled you and let you go hungry and fed you with the manna. You see, God allowed them to come to the point where they say, we need food. We, we can't do anything for ourselves. And then God provided the manna. And by providing the manna, a miraculous, supernatural supply for their needs, God shows their utter dependence on him in that situation. Verse 4 says, Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Now that is amazing. Here they are in a desert situation where it's hard for them to actually find materials to work with and you know, make new clothes. As clothes tend to wear out. But for 40 years, their clothes didn't wear out. Well, wouldn't you like to have clothes like that? That would you know, be very convenient. But God did that. And again, it's miraculous. Even though they're in this desolate place, no resources to go and, and just take the resources and produce their own things. God is just making it so that nothing is lacking for them. Verse 7 says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of streams of water, fountains and springs, flowing out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without shortage in which you will not lack anything a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. So the gratitude that is so necessary. See, here they were in Egypt where they were slaves and they couldn't really benefit even from their own labors. It was going to somebody else. And now they're going into a land where they will have possession of the land. And there's so much provided for them in this land. There are fruits and there's food in abundance and there is metal that they can use and they can make instruments and tools with and everything that they need. And all of this is provided for them by the Lord and the Lord is allowing them to go in. And mind you that they are not able to defeat the inhabitants of this land that will try to kill them if they come in. But God also gives them power. And you know that the conquest of Cana was so supernatural. I mean, you talk about the walls of Jericho falling down, of the, the day that was extended so that they could pursue their enemies, of the hornets that God used to drive out people. Just the way that God caused Israel to come in possession of the land was very clear in its message. This cannot be done unless... God supernaturally does this for you. And that's the way God made this whole situation happen. And God was doing this for a reason. He wanted them to recognize their dependence on God. And he wanted them in all of this to turn to God with gratitude and bless the Lord God who gave them the good land. And he points this out. It needs to be pointed out. It shouldn't be overlooked. It shouldn't be taken for granted. Because, oh, are we good at taking things for granted. We are so good at looking at everything and saying, I have this because I did so much to get here where I am today. I've done so much, and that's why I have what I have. I worked so hard. 
See, e- even when people think this about material blessings, of course, they're forgetting that it's the Lord God who provides us first with life and in health and strength and energy, or we'd be totally incapable of doing anything. And then, of course, if we say, oh, but I mean, I have the virtues. I'm a hardworking person. Well, yes, okay, by God's grace. Because if it weren't for the grace of God, all of us could be just left to ourselves, become the most degenerate humans that are are completely worthless and are not productive and just don't do anything for society that society would recognize and say, we will pay you for that because, yeah, that's beneficial. We could become those kind of people. We could be born in circumstances where there would be no good context for our development and our flourishing. We could be dead at any point. We could be enslaved. Any of us. And so, no matter how you want to paint the picture and say, well, I mean, I've done my share here only by the grace of God. See, and a godly person will recognize that. Remember when Job lost everything? Job was rich. He was blessed. He had a, a lot of kids and God had done this for him. And when it was taken, what did Job say? The Lord gave. And the Lord took. He didn't say, I built all this and the Lord took it. You see where his perspective was. Oh, how different is that from a Nebuchadnezzar who walks around on the rooftop, looks around the city and says, isn't this the great Babylon that I built? And God says, we're going to put you in your place. You're going to realize, unless God gives you the ability, you won't even have the reasoning of a human. You'll be acting like an animal. And God brought him to understand that. And so all of these things are important for us to understand. And so the scripture here is calling upon us to think in these categories, to recognize God as the source of our blessing, the source of our goodness, to not try to take credit for the goodness that God has shown us. Look at verse 12. He says, Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, and you build good houses and live in them, and when your heads excuse me, your herds and your flocks increase and your silver and gold increase and everything that you have increases, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He who led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and its thirsty ground where there was no water, He who brought water for you out of the rock of Flint in the wilderness, it was he who fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, in order to humble you and in order to put you to the test to do good for you in the end. If you go through the reading of Scripture and you read the sequence, Genesis, Exodus, and you keep going, when you get to Numbers, that description of that period that they stayed in the desert, of course, because of their rebellion, they wouldn't trust God to enter the Promised Land as soon as they came out of Egypt, so they were punished, and they they got to spend 40 years in Egypt for that generation to die off before the next generation went in. It's very interesting if you focus on 
the acts of God in the book of Numbers, you'll see that God dealt with the people of Israel in such a way that in one aspect, he removed from the population progressively those who were the worst troublemakers and the worst influence on the nation. Another thing that he did is he brought about circumstances that caused the younger generation to, to see who God is and to trust God. And you remember, the, for example, the incident with the serpents where they had to go and, and look and live and be healed from if they'd been bitten by serpents. And God producing this need to, to trust in God for provision. And they felt that in their body. They could feel the, the venom of the snake just taking its effect upon them. And then they go and they look and they would just be healed and say, God delivered me. God saved me. And God produced a spirit in the people that the people went into the promised land with Joshua. And they didn't act like their fathers had done 40 years earlier. And the Bible says in the book of Judges, as a reflection upon that whole period, that the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and of the other ones who had also seen those mighty works of God. It was after that generation passed away that they rebelled and they turned after other gods. You see, God produced a revival. That doesn't mean that every single Israelite was saved. But he did make a, a true conversion in a number of hearts, so much so that they had a different reality when they went in the promised land than they had when they came out of Egypt. And, and that's the kind of goodness that God sows here, that all of those things that God did, even those trials, those difficulties, the, the, the humiliation that they went through, being in the desert and suffering so much, God did all of that and it was all calculated for their good. God knew that that would be good for them. And so even these things that they would have said, uh, God, if you're asking me if I want that, no, I'll pass. God said, no, you're going to go through this, but it's good for you. And God knew what he was doing. So everything, even the difficulties that they faced, were out of the goodness of God. Verse 17 says, Otherwise, you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you are to remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth in order to confirm His covenant, which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. So that's the danger that we as sinful humans have, the danger of being ungrateful, of receiving blessings and blessings and blessings, and then in the end saying, I did this for myself. Boy, I must be quite a grand fellow. Not giving God his due credit. You know, ingratitude is a very ugly thing. I'm sure that most of us have felt at some point that in some way somebody was ungrateful as we were actually trying to be helpful to the person. And it saddens the heart of somebody who's trying to do that. God really requires people to give him the glory for the goodness that he's shown. And it's because the fact that the ingratitude that people have when they don't give God the credit, it's really a corruption on a moral level of the human heart that needs to be corrected. It's sinful. Some people try to take this, and especially since the Enlightenment, you start having this refrain repeated that 
God is egocentric. God is a megalomaniac, and he's just all about trying to get the glory for himself. How ugly, how ugly. You know, that's such a stupid thing. I mean, that's stupid. I mean, that's something that somebody will only say if they've never thought it through. What is megalomania anyways? A dictionary definition will say something along these lines. This is what one dictionary actually says. Megalomania is an excessive and pathological overvaluing of oneself. Now think about it. Is that possible for God? Can God overvalue himself? Can God have a higher estimation of himself than is proper or due? Of course not. A person who's a megalomaniac has a distortion in his mind. He has a delusion of being more powerful than he is. How could God have that? He's almighty. A person has these fantasies that he is to be reverenced in a great way because of his own importance when his importance actually isn't anything like that. That's what we're talking about when we have this kind of thing. Now, God has no distortion in his estimation of himself. For a human being, somebody like us, to believe that we are all important, that we are the center of the universe, everything revolves around us, or that people should definitely uh, look up to us as above everybody else, that, that is wrong. It's actually kind of ridiculous because on a qualitative level, nobody is higher than anybody else. We're all humans, we're all finite, we're all limited, we're all mortal, and we're all sinful, and we all come short of the glory of God. And so, I mean, there's really uh, only, the only difference that, between anybody is, as Paul said, who is it that makes you differ? It's the Lord. The Lord has been good, and we can be grateful, but we can't say, on, on my merit, I'm superior, I'm better, or anything like that. So, the real megalomaniac is the person who thinks, I will not give credit to God. Who does he think he is? He thinks he's like God or something? I won't give God credit. I'll take the credit. That's the one who really has the delusion. See, God is the source of all good. When God says things like, all the beasts of the field look to me, for their provision. That's not an illusion. That's just, that's just a statement of fact. They are dependent on God. See, God is before all things. In Him, all things have their existence. He maintains. He's the creator and He's the sustainer of all things. God's perfect in every way. He's perfect in His character. He's holy. He's good. He's loving. And in God, there is no darkness. There are no imperfections in Him. So, of course, it's correct and proper for us to have a negative reaction when we see a human being trying to exalt himself above everybody else and trying to act like, you know, here, I'm the leader of this little country, and so everybody needs to kind of worship me as a god, you know. Or nobody should pray to anybody else except Darius for the next so many days. And of course, we look at that and we say, that's wrong. I mean, that's, that's inappropriate. I mean, what, this guy needs, you know, have an adjustment in his mind. But that's not the case with God. The Bible says, Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of you of your will they exist and were created. 
So he created everything. That's why things exist. Anything that exists, you and I, we exist because God created us, because he willed for us to exist. And so he's naturally the owner of everything. He is the legitimate owner of all that there is. He's also the source of all goodness and all blessing. God's will is always right, and it's always the best. There is no measure in which God could have any improvement in his thoughts, in his doings, or in his person. So if we consider all these things, we realize that, yes, God is to be recognized for who he is, worshipped in this way. But as the Bible calls us to give this focus to God and honor him and express our gratitude to him, why does the Bible do this? Is it some kind of need on God's part? Is God just emotionally needy here and he's looking around and saying, you know, I'm so great, but I really need some people to, to kind of praise me all the time and I think I'll create a universe so I can get that kind of adulation. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of not happy unless I have it. Now, of course, that's not the reason God created. That's, that's nonsense. And if you think about it, God needs no attention from us. He doesn't get uptight around Thursday thinking, wow, it's been a long time since Sunday when I get mo- most of my praise, and you know, Sunday is taking a long time to come around. It's, it's nonsense to think that way. God has no needs. In no way does the all-sufficient God depend on us for his contentment, for his perfections, or for anything, even in eternity past. It wasn't a lack in God that moved him to create. And the Bible says something about that. Think about these passages. First of all, in Acts chapter 17... Of course, Paul was in Athens preaching to Athenians who believed in the kinds of Greek deities and things that were always dependent. You had to kind of make sure that you gave the gods the offerings they wanted and give them the kinds of uh, attention that they required. That way the god would look at you and say, oh, I'm liking this. I'm going to help this person have what he wants because that way he'll keep giving me this. That was the thoughts that they had. So they'd make these great temples and beautiful, magnificent constructions and do offerings and things like this. And Paul comes in just with a thought for them that was completely revolutionary. And he says, the God who made the world and everything, everything that is in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. We need to understand that the Lord God that we're dealing with, he's not just an improved human. He's a being in a completely different category. Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 15, has this to say. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Oh, that's a thought. Have you ever been carrying a bucket? You fill it with water up to, you know, about as high as is reasonable for you not so splashing it everywhere. And as you carry it, a drop of water 
one drop falls off. You look back and, oh, I lost a drop of water. What am I going to do? You just keep going. You just ignore it. It's like, that's a drop of water. Okay, that is how humanity, all eight billion, are to God. We're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. So here you have scales, and you know how these old scales work. They'll put a weight on one side, and then they'll put enough of the whatever they're buying on the other side until it balances, and that way they know that they've got the right quantity of the thing that they're purchasing. And when they go and get the scales, let's imagine that there's a speck of dust, just one little speck of dust on the scales. Do they actually inspect it and look very closely and say, make sure there's no dust on it, we don't want it? No, they, don't, they, they just ignore it. It's like, what difference does a speck of dust make? There's no weight in the speck of dust. Nothing. Okay, that's us. That's what the Bible is saying. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? See, that's what we're talking about when we talk about God. See, from the perspective of an Israelite in Isaiah's day, the forest of Lebanon, that was impressive. And you talk about, let's, let's do something to really honor somebody. What if we could get, like, the forest of Lebanon? Talk about a lot of wood there for God. That's not enough. And you say, well... All the animals there as born offering. That's nothing. That's not enough. Okay, I know how we'll honor God. It says, we will give God the best that we can come up with. Never is that really enough. And so, how does God ever accept anybody's worship? Just out of his goodness. Not because he's ever impressed. Not because he couldn't have better. If God really wanted better worship. It's not our worship that he would find at the, the top. I mean, we're, we're incapable of doing anything that really renders God enough. Psalm 50, verse 8 says, I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. That's a thought. Think about it. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. In other words, I accept them. I, you bring these things to me, I accept them. I don't rebuke you for them because if you're going to look you know, and analyze and see, okay, is this something that is worthy of being given? To, no, it's, it's really not. But God doesn't rebuke. It's just out of his generosity and his graciousness. Verse 9 says, I will not take a bull from your house nor male goat from your folds. For every animal in the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and everything it contains. I shall eat the flesh of bull, shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? 
offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me on the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. That is such an insight into the whole reality of the Christian experience. We worship God, and we're not supplying God where he turns out to be needy, and so we come in and meet his need. So he's eternally grateful. Now, who has given to him that he should repay? There's no such thing. But on the other hand, as imperfect as we are, it's because God loves us, and God has brought us through the work of his Spirit to become new creatures that can actually render an acceptable praise to God, not on our merit, but through the merits of Christ and through the working of God in our lives. And God then accepts this, and God tells us to do these things, but in the end, since we can't benefit God, we can't add to God, we can't make God better off, we can't give Him a better day, but there is one end of this arrangement that benefits. We do. We turn out to be the, the beneficiaries in the end. And he says, Offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me on the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. See, those are the things that are brought out in this passage. There's a very real sense in which God created just because to show his goodness, to make vessels of mercy, objects of grace, those which he would lavish with his kindness and just create creatures that would be eternally happy. That's something that God would do. And God did it. Wow, do we benefit. You believe in Christ? There's no way anybody can tell you what's ahead of us. It's a lot more wonderful than we can actually imagine. Eternal life, abundant life, being with Christ, being conformed to His image, having no vestiges of sin, just being humanity at the level of perfection, of God's workmanship. Oh, that's, that's precious. It's wonderful more than anybody could really understand. We'll be amazed forever at what God will do for us, in us. And this is how God brings glory to himself. Let me read some words of A.W. Tozer. He said, Since he, the Lord God, is the being supreme over all, it follows that God cannot be elevated. Nothing is above him, nothing beyond him. Any motion in his direction is elevation for the creature. Away from him, descent. As no one can promote him, so no one can degrade him. It is written that he upholds all things by the word of his power. How can he be raised or supported by the things he upholds? Were all human beings suddenly to become blind, still the sun would shine by day and the stars by night. For these owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their light. So, were every man on earth to become atheist, it could not affect God in any way. 
He is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away. Almighty God, just because he is almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous, ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet, if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is no greater for our being, nor would he be less if we didn't exist. That's the correct view on the greatness of God and our relative insignificance. There's an illustration that you may have heard. I've heard it probably a dozen times that people will use when they're talking about how you should serve the Lord. That they'll, they'll tell the story that happened in World War II, it seems, and a city was bombed, and there was a church that had a statue of Christ, and in the bombing, the statue fell down, and the hands broke off, and it was left basically intact, except for the fact that it didn't have hands, and the leader of that particular church took that image and put it up, and then he used that as an object lesson. He told the people, see, God is giving us a message that Christ has no hands but us, that we need to work for him. That's, that's not what the Bible says. That's not how the Bible paints the picture. So it's unfortunate that you see things like that, and Tozer, right in the 20th century, realized that that was becoming the refrain. I mean, it was a long a long way from the days of the Puritans or the days of the Reformers when people exalted God a lot more consistently in church teaching. <clears throat> the Bible talks about how we really benefit from God's creating us and saving us. Ephesians says that in the ages to come, he will show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that's really something, if you think about it. That's very much part of the, the reason why God created, just to show himself, to show who he is and show his kindness, so that creatures made in his own image could absorb and appreciate and adore that which is ultimately adorable. Have this relationship with God. Know him and enjoy him forever. If God decides I'm going to bless and I am going to give to a creature that which is the ultimate of all things he would actually have to give himself. There is none higher. And so if a person comes to that recognition, loves God, serves God, has this relationship with God, that's where the person comes to the fullness of everything. And the person who doesn't realize that and looks like, what's God trying to use me for? Is God trying to use me for his own ends? What is this? That person's been deluded by the devil. I mean, that's the blindness of all things and seriously, 
as if that person would lose anything by gaining God. When Jesus said that people are going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom with all the prophets and themselves excluded, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, a lot of the pain is going to be just the emotional agony of coming to realize I didn't estimate God properly and I didn't realize how great God is and I didn't, I didn't want to have a relationship with God, my creator, the most wonderful being that there could ever be. And so that is what God is doing. God is bringing people to the ultimate experience when he draws people to himself and he says, honor me for who I am. Recognize me, love me, serve me. That's how people do what is right, what is proper, what is correct. That is when people are actually doing that which is good and in which people also benefit. So, I mean, there's nothing uh, ugly about God bringing us to serve him in this way. It's actually just the most natural thing that anybody should anticipate. Tozer also goes on and says, probably the hardest thought for all the hardest thought of all for our natural egoism to entertain is that God does not need our help. We commonly represent him as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking help to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. But as said by Lady Julian, I saw truly that God doeth all things, be it never so little, the God who worketh all things surely needs no help and no helpers. Too many missionary appeals are based upon the fancied frustration of Almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his listeners, not only for the heathen, but for God, who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for want or lack of of support. I hear that thousands of younger persons enter Christian service for no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. Wow. Isn't that, a, isn't that something that we need to think about? We need to be careful to not portray God as impotent in any way, as shortcoming and turning to us in desperation with pleas that would, we would be the ones who would rescue him. That's, that's not a biblical picture at all. So, <clears throat> in conclusion, what we really need to think about, if this is true, and this is the wonderful God that has blessed us, and we need to be grateful as he blessed us, We need to understand that in the Old Testament, the delivery from slavery in Egypt and the giving to the people of Israel of the Promised Land has a typological function to represent the deliverance of slavery from sin and being introduced into the Promised Land as in receiving eternal life and the eternal kingdom. You see that brought out many times in the Old Testament, in the Psalms especially. But you see this in the New Testament as well. You'll, For example, in 
the book of Hebrews, it talks about how there is still a rest that we need to look forward to, that it wasn't something that existed in the time of Joshua. Joshua took them into the promised land, but there's another one that the Bible talks about later in the Psalms, remember? So there is still a rest ahead for the people of God. And so this rest, which is the eternal blessedness that we're headed for as saved Christians, as people who have been bought by the blood of Christ, regenerated by the Spirit, and called into fellowship with Christ. This is pictured in a certain way by all of this. And so when God took the people out of slavery and took them into the promised land, he did it deliberately in such a way that showed that the supernatural elements were essential and without them nothing would have happened. They wouldn't have gotten out of slavery. They wouldn't have gotten into the promised land. They wouldn't have fought those tall Canaanites. And they wouldn't have won unless God had worked miracles for them. God did it in a miraculous way because God wanted to get a point across. You need to understand that this is not something that you owe yourselves. This is something that you owe me. And the same thing is absolutely true about salvation and eternal salvation. If we think about how God works the salvation of a soul, He has allowed all of us to be in a condition of sin on our own account with nothing that we can do being delivered by the miracle of regeneration. A complete miracle. Uninitiated by us. Not based on our good works, but on His mercy that was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world ever existed. That's how God works in us to regenerate us, to bring us to life so we could even think of God as that which we would desire and recognize our sins for the wicked things that they really are so that we would repent and turn and and plead for forgiveness that we so much need. See, these things have all been done and arranged. And the way that we are maintained graciously by God throughout the Christian experience and so that providentially God takes care of us so that we cross the finish line and we enter glory by His grace and for His glory. See, God has done these things in this way, not so that we would fail to recognize that we are completely dependent on Him for this, but actually for this very purpose that we should understand that all of this, all of it, is from Him. It's for His kindness. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, the Apostle Paul wrote, With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape, from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's the picture of the slavery that we were in. We were captives of the devil, and we need to escape his snare, but we can't do it. Only if God grants repentance. Only if God makes us come to our senses, opens our eyes, gives us eyes to see, ears to hear. And then, yes, it happens. It's a miracle by God's grace. J.C. Ryle said this, Never is a man in his right mind till he is converted, or in his right place till he sits by faith at the feet of Jesus, 
or rightly clothed that until he has put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have we ever considered what real conversion to God is? It is nothing else but the miraculous release of a captive, the miraculous restoration of a man to his right mind, the miraculous deliverance of a soul from the devil. Oh, that's so beyond us. And so, if it was so important that the deliverance from Egypt, the inheritance of the promised land, be recognized as a gracious gift of God to the people of Israel, and God says, don't let your heart become proud. Don't start looking at this and say, I did this. If that's about the physical land of Israel, how much more about the new heavens and the new earth? How much more is that important about the salvation of our souls, which we owe totally to the precious blood of Christ, which he shed on our behalf. And without the work of the Spirit, we never would have had any inclination. So as we think about these things, of all that God has done, and we recognize we are saved, let us never forget that it's by grace. And let us give God all the glory. Let's stand and say a prayer, please. <clears throat> Dear Lord God, we thank you in a very feeble way, not in a way as we should. But we thank you because you've saved us. We thank you because you've given us grace. You've given us by your grace the hearing of the word. You've given us the understanding and the heart, the new heart, to believe. And we thank you, Lord, because you've done these things, O Lord, that we should see that your kindness and your goodness upon us is so wonderful, so great, so magnificent. And we owe you everything. Lord, we're not grateful enough. But help us as we reflect upon these truths from your word that our gratitude would increase, that we would even obey you better, and that we would worship you better. And, oh, Lord, we look forward to rendering rendering perfect praise as perfect humans because we know, Lord, that until you've taken us to that level, you haven't finished with us. And we know that we will one day have the joy of being conformed to the image of Christ. And oh, we long for that day. And we long for the the wonderful experience that it will be just to be able to know that in a, a way that truly honors you and all of our being, we will worship you. We look forward to that day. Hasten the day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless this church. We are so grateful. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you. Amen.